Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Morning, church. I love praying the Psalms like that. That is, it's powerful to hear. So, um... My name is Michael. Welcome to Christ the King Church. I'm glad to have you here with us. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, Before we begin, I want to acknowledge something, and it's a bit of an elephant in the room. If you are new or visiting with us, I just want to uh, let you in on what's happening. We're going through a transition as a church, and basically what that is is that recently there have been a lot of people that have left our church, uh, including some of the elders. basically because of a difference over the vision and the future of our church, and particularly about how we handle cultural issues. So um, we've been discussing these things openly at member meetings over the last uh, two Sundays, and it's been in part of our conversation interpersonally with each other, Um, but it hasn't been acknowledged here um, in a public way, so that way it's like, okay, everybody here knows, everybody here can talk about it more freely if, if that's what's good for you. Now isn't the time to discuss the particulars of it, but I did want to simply acknowledge this fact and um, just acknowledge that some people here today, um, there's, you come with mixed feelings or you, you, you have certain emotions about being here. You're feeling a sense of loss. And I want to acknowledge that and just express love and compassion um, no matter what your, your emotional state is. Um, Some of you may show up today feeling sad Some of you may show up feeling confused, some may feel skeptical, some of you may feel hopeful, and we all process emotions differently. We all feel things differently. I have felt all of those emotions and many, many more over the last uh, several months. But um, emotions are complicated and they can be confusing. So Eric and I, um, we are happy to process you know, with you, to talk with you, pray with you. That's why we're having open house type of format uh, meetings over the next couple weeks. So tonight and next Sunday at 6 p.m. we'll be here. And it's it's an open forum just to come. And uh, um, I I expect a handful of people to show up. I don't expect a great crowd because it really is, there's no agenda. It's just space for us to talk. Um, So if you'd like to come and talk and um, pray, process, um, ask questions, get answers, this, that time is for you. That's 6 to 8 this week and next week. And then we'll have more announcements about the future after that. So I just wanted to acknowledge this as we started. Um, and, and then to pray again just for our hearts specifically to focus on Jesus. This is a worship gathering. We are here for Jesus, to worship Jesus. And he is our focus. So I want to pray again uh, that that will be the case before we open God's word. So we pray. Lord, settle our minds. Open our hearts. Fix our eyes on Jesus so that we may know, love, and obey you as Lord over all of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing a series in the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to look at the Pharisees. We haven't really spent a lot of time talking about the Pharisees, um, but they're the famous villains of the New Testament. They're Jesus' chief opponents. Uh, throughout the gospel stories. So if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably have an idea in mind already of what these guys are like. So you might think of them as the super religious types. 
They're the hyper-legalistic types, the people who think they can earn God's salvation through good works. You might think of them as the all law and no grace types, people who think obeying God's law can get them to heaven. Now, there is some truth in that description, but it's not complete because there's more to them than just being hyper-religious type of people. In fact, some of them uh, followed Jesus. So Nicodemus is an example of one of the Pharisees who followed Jesus, not to mention the Apostle Paul, who became a follower of Jesus. So today what we're going to do is we're going to get to know them better. And I want us, while we're getting to know them better, I want us to learn ways that we can be like them. So you might, th- you might not think that, well, I'm not like those Pharisee types that you have in your mind as a caricature. But in fact, there's an inner Pharisee, a potential inner Pharisee within each one of us. So I want us to be able to learn how we might become like the Pharisees and to be able to repent of that and follow Jesus with a whole heart. So let's dig in. We're in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Pause. Who are the Pharisees? Well, they were religious elites of the, of the day during Jesus' time. They were the cultural gatekeepers of Judaism. And so being a Pharisee wasn't a job. Some of them were professionals, but it, being a Pharisee was more like a sect. It was a way of life. It was a, a, a set of principles that you lived by. A, they, they were a group of people that shared particular beliefs and values. Now, some of them were professionals, and the professional Pharisees, we know them as scribes or lawyers. But their job was to promote the views of the sect of Judaism. And so you might think of them as the thought leaders of the day. They were very well loved and respected by ordinary Jews, and their job was to protect their faith, protect the Jewish identity. So they were kind of the self-appointed guardians of orthodoxy, and they wanted to make sure the rank-and-file Jews stayed in line. And generally, they were suspicious of Jesus. Why would that be? Well, they were suspicious of Jesus because Jesus was drawing people to himself And that was eroding their support. And yet, some of them did become followers of Jesus, like I mentioned already. So, there was this Pharisee here that invited Jesus over to dinner. And Jesus was uh, inclined to go. So, Jesus went and had dinner at his house. But whenever he showed up, the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now, we hear wash before dinner, and we think of telling our kids, wash your hands before dinner because we're concerned about hygiene, about germs. We don't want bacteria. We don't want people getting sick. And plus, it's just, you know, it's generally safe practice to wash your hands before dinner. That's not what the Pharisee is worried about. The Pharisee is worried about some ritual cleansing. He's worried about a ceremonial purity that Jesus ignored. Jesus ignored this ceremony that the Pharisee thought that he should keep. So he wasn't offended about hygiene. He was offended that Jesus didn't do the cleansing ritual. But here's the thing. That ritual was a made-up law. It's not part of the Old Testament. The law did not require him to wash. It was a part of the Pharisees' tradition. And so Jesus was not obligated to follow the Pharisees' tradition. Jesus was concerned to, to, 
to demonstrate faithfulness to the law. So where this came from, if you uh, look at Exodus chapter 30 and 40, there were laws given to the priests when they were serving in the temple about how to keep the bowls and the utensils and the cups clean for use in the temple. Those were the specific laws. And so what the Pharisees thought is like, hey, let's take those laws that were given to the priests in the temple and let's apply them in the home and to people. Because just as the the temple should be pure and dedicated to God, so also should the home and the people be pure and dedicated to God. You know, that you could say that's a good heart, you know, that, you know, I, you know kudos for them to, to desire that. But what they ended up doing was inventing a new law. And that was this, this law of purity that was not required by God. So the effect was to take a law that was meant for one place, the temple, and to misapply it into some other place, the home, where God did not command it. And the effect was basically to treat every place like a temple and every person like a priest. Now, the temple had very specific instructions for how to manage it. And the priesthood had very specific instructions for how they were to conduct themselves. And they were to be set apart in a particular way from the rest of the people. But that's not what God required of all the people. And God did not require that of all the places. So they were misapplying God's law where God did not intend it to, um, uh, to apply. And they were doing it with this religious fervor, this force of thus saith the Lord about something that thus did not saith the Lord. So they misread scripture, they misapplied scripture, and they placed a priestly burden on ordinary people. And whenever you misapply scripture, and you do so with the force of divine decree, You invent a new tradition. The Pharisees were experts at doing this. They burdened people with man-made, human decrees and traditions. And this Pharisee was trying to do it to Jesus. He was saying, hey, Jesus, you're not following my personal law. He was upset that Jesus did not follow the man-made tradition. That's what Pharisees do. Pharisees make up new laws, and they force people to obey them, and they call it sin when they don't. So the Pharisees can be instructive for us because they can help us learn how not to follow them, but also how not to become them. And both can be temptations for us. And so whenever we think of the Pharisees as these hyper-legalistic types of people who make a point of spoiling everybody's good time then we miss the potential that there could be other Pharisees in our midst and there could be other Pharisees even in our own hearts. So we we often assume that modern-day Pharisees are anybody who believes we should obey the law of God. That's not being a Pharisee. That's being a Christian. That's that's our mission statement. Help people know, love, and obey. Jesus is Lord over all of life. That's not legalism. And if that's the picture in our minds, then we could end up becoming pharisaical about not being Pharisees. Because like, I don't want to be that kind of person. That kind of person is pharisaical. So we can end up being pharisaical about obedience to Jesus. Well, that's, that's not healthy or good. And I'm sure you've seen this, that there can be this pharisaical spirit. And, th- and this thing can af- infect any one of us. I've seen it in myself. It can infect any one of us. 
Pharisees tend to focus on the externals while missing the inner part. They miss the internals. So ultimately, Pharisaism is a way to keep Jesus at arm's length. Keeping Jesus at arm's length by avoiding repentance and thus avoiding the gospel. And that's a temptation. This Pharisaical spirit can lurk inside any one of us and keep us from following Jesus. So then we need to learn how to identify our inner Pharisee so we can put him to death in the power of the gospel. So we're going to continue through this text. And as we continue through this text, I want to give you several ways to identify and mortify your inner Pharisee. Now, these may not all apply to you. In fact, there may be just one, you know, or maybe none. Uh, who knows? But they, they may not all apply to you. But where they do, um, just remember, and this is where we'll end today, remember that there is hope in the gospel if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and then we will be forgiven, even of this Pharisaical spirit. So here we go. Um, I've got six of them. Six ways to identify your inner Pharisee. And for what it's worth, these six ways correspond with the six woes. So we're going to go through here and Jesus will be like, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. There's six of those, and these are the six ways we can identify our inner Pharisee. So here's the first one. Pharisees focus on the externals and the minutiae, and they miss the inner life of the heart. If you don't know how to spell minutiae, I'll help you out. M-I-N-U-T. I-A-E. Note takers. M-U-N-I-T-I-A-E. They focus on the externals and the minutiae, and they miss the inner life of the heart. Or the way Jesus says it, they cleanse the outside of the cup and not the inside of the cup. So verse 39. So Jesus is going to respond to the Pharisee. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within you. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's the first woe. Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you're being hypocrites. Because the outside doesn't match the inside. You lack integrity. Integrity is when your inner person is the same as your outer person. That's a person of integrity. So on the outside, what they would do is they would measure out a very precise amount of tithe. So if the tithe requirement of the Old Testament was 10% of your income, they would measure it out, including all the way down to their spice rack. They would tithe mint and, and herbs and all this stuff. So, and they would do so publicly. They would give these large sums. And their focus is on the outside, on the minutia, on the little details, because the outside is easier to control. It's more visible. It's more tangible. The outside is concrete. It's measurable. And so it's easy then, if you're focused on the externals, to, to convince yourself that you're being obedient to God when actually your heart is far from God. That's what Pharisees do. Now, Jesus goes on to say those things matter. 
Those things do matter. It's, it's not as though, well, we should just neglect external obedience and only focus on the inner heart. No, of course not. We, we also obey in the externals, but we want the internals to line up as well. The outer behavior should be the truest indicator of your inner life. But if your inner life does not match the outer behavior, then you're being hypocritical. And that's what his criticism of the Pharisees was. So on the, on the outside, they're tithing mint and, and, uh, and, and rue and these herbs. But what's on the inside? Wickedness and greed. So they put on a show of giving, of, of, of generosity. They put on a show of, of tithing, but on the inside, they're greedy and they're wicked, and Jesus sees them. And they, he said, basically, they disregard the needs of others. And in other, other texts that describe the Pharisees, they're called, the lo- they're called lovers of money. So the Pharisees were known to have a profit motive in the way that they behaved. So if you could think of it as a man who gives money to charity and gives generously to charity only for the tax benefit, but not because he cares about the actual thing that he's giving his money to. That's a lack of integrity. So even though they were scrupulous tithers on the inside, on, or on the outside, on the inside, it was a sham. They were greedy. They lacked integrity. So a Bible dictionary um, said, a visible preoccupation with the trivial while neglecting the most important thing is hypocrisy. So that's the first First way to identify an inner Pharisee, you focus on the externals and the minutia, and you miss the inner life of the heart. You're a hypocrite. Number two, Pharisees do their good deeds to be seen by others. They do good deeds to be seen. So they felt the need to publicize their good works. They, they did things in order to be recognized. So verse 43, woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So Jesus is saying, woe to you Pharisees because you want to be in the place of prominence. You want to be a place of visibility. You love to receive honor in public. You want to be respected for your position, but not for your character. So in my... uh, See, I got married in 1999. I've been married for 23 years. 23 years. Whew. 23 years. All right. <laughs> and in that period of time, Laura and I, we've bought three different houses. We, had, we bought a house in Louisville when we lived there. We bought a house when we moved here. And we bought a house as a, that, that we used as a rental property. All three of the houses were flips. So every one of those we bought from a builder who had renovated a house that had been in some state of disrepair. So we bought three different flipped houses, and every time uh, that we bought one of these houses, we've learned something, and now we've done it enough times to see a few patterns. And the pattern is they focus on the externals. So appearance sells houses, right? Gina, Elijah, am I right? People want to walk into a house, they want to fall in love, oh, this house is so cute, and then... They want to buy it. And so it doesn't matter if the plumbing is a mess. It doesn't matter if it's got old wiring and is a fire hazard. That, that doesn't matter if they walk into the house and they fall in love because the house is cute. So if a house is pretty, if it's stylish, if it's charming, then people will buy that house. If the house is ugly, then potential buyers probably won't even care that you just replace the wiring 
and that the foundation is solid and that the plumbing is totally intact. That doesn't matter as much. Now, maybe a builder who wants to flip the house would, but a normal buyer, that's not going to be a priority for them most of the time. Jesus is telling these guys, hey, you're just like a flipped house. You've got great curb appeal, but you're falling apart on the inside. It's just like lipstick on a pig. You know, it's, it, it's, it's ugly. It's like what he sees in them is ugly. But on the outside, they're doing these things for show, and people are giving them all the praise and the accolades. So the Pharisees then, they're like bad house flippers. They're better at curb appeal than functionality. It's all for show. Now, whenever we talk to other people, and there's, anytime we talk to people, we're, we're disclosing something about ourselves. We're, we're revealing things about ourselves. And what we choose to reveal or what we choose to conceal is part of our everyday PR. We want people to perceive us in a certain way, and we'll choose to say things or not say things, a lot of times based on how we think they might perceive us. So we want them to see our curb appeal, right? We want them to see the good things about us. We want them to think well of us. We don't want them to see how our wiring is faulty and we're a fire hazard, (laughs) relationally anyway. But Pharisees, they can't resist the urge to draw attention to their curb appeal. Now, we have a word for this in our day. We call it virtue signaling. We want people to think well of us. We want to draw attention to our good deeds. We want to be respected and loved. And this is not, virtue signaling is not merely something that we do online. I mean, it's something that we do all the time in our interactions with people. We can easily signal our virtue, casually dropping into conversation the wonderful, glorious things that we do to honor God and how, you know, how respectable we should be. That's a normal human thing to do that. And generally, whatever your personal strengths are, whatever your gifts are, those will be the things that you'll be most tempted to draw attention to because those are the things that you're good at. Those are the things that make you look good. Pharisees do good deeds to be seen by others. Here's the third one. Pharisees may mislead people without realizing it. They may mislead people without realizing it. Meaning they may unintentionally draw people away from the truth of Christ. Verse 44, Jesus says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves... And people walk over them without knowing it. Now, that's not obvious to us what he's talking about there. What he's talking about here, in their day, if you walked over a grave, you would become defiled. Because you're coming into close proximity to a dead body. And and contact with a dead body would defile a person. They would become ceremonially unclean. And so, what would you do with a grave? You would mark the grave with a stone or some other indicator that this is a grave so that you would know when you came near it, you would walk around it. You wouldn't walk over it. Now, if the grave was unmarked, you might walk over it. You might, then you would become ceremonially unclean. You would be defiled by walking over an unmarked grave, but you wouldn't realize it. Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees, this is what you do. People come into close proximity with you. They absorb your ethos. They see what you're like. And they become defiled. They're influenced by your character or lack thereof. And then they walk away. And because of their respect for you and your high status, your your religious position, they start to follow your lead. They think that's the way they should be. 
And if they see hypocrisy in you, then they will become hypocrites themselves. They become defiled, and they don't even realize it. And so to the extent that we have a pharisaical spirit about us, we may do the same thing. We may cause other people to be misled or defiled. Or we may respect somebody who is a Pharisee and we may follow their lead and be influenced by them. Number four, Pharisees invent new laws and new sins. Pharisees invent new laws and new sins. They redefine sin and righteousness according to human standards. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. (laughs) Doesn't back down for a second. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the lawyers, they were the professional class, right? They were Pharisees who were also law experts. They were scribes and the experts of the law, like Blake Maislin, a law expert. Those of you who know that, all right, you're, you're tracking with me. When I lived in Louisville, we had Daryl Isaacs, the hammer, the heavy hitter. So that's the guy in Louisville. I came to Cincinnati. I'm like, oh, they have their own heavy hitter up here. They have uh, Blake Maislin up here, the 444-444-444-444, whatever. I'm just, I'm, I'm advertising for him now. But um, <laughs> So they were like the, the experts in the law, and they were famous for this. And they added new commandments to God's law. They created these new standards of right and wrong, and then they judged other people by human standards. Now, that, isn't that precisely what the Pharisee did whenever Jesus showed up at dinner? Jesus showed up at dinner. He didn't wash according to the human tradition. Not according, he didn't violate any Old Testament law that's actually in the Bible. He violated the human tradition that the Pharisees made up And then they judged Jesus based on his failure to comply with their made-up tradition. They made up a new standard of righteousness. They made up new sins whenever they don't live up to that standard. And then they judged people according to that made-up standard. This is the spirit of our age. This happens all the time. You don't have to be a religious zealot to be a Pharisee because we live in a very moral age where we're very concerned about morality, about right and wrong. And that's, that's very much part of what it's like to live in the world in 2022. Some Christians think that being careful to observe God's law is self-righteous and legalistic, but that's not the case at all. Of course, we should be careful to obey God's law. That's why, it's, that's why he's given us a standard of right and wrong to where we can know what good is. We can know what evil is. That's a good thing. It's good to obey God's law. But it's not observing God's law that makes you a Pharisee. It's adding to God's law that makes you a Pharisee. God's law is good. Read Psalm 119 if you don't believe me. <laughs> the law of the Lord is perfect. I mean, like... It, that, that psalm is just like this love poem to the law of God about how beautiful and wonderful and perfect the law of God is. That's a good thing. 
We corrupt it and twist it and pervert it when we add to it our own opinions. Every generation has their own way of doing this, and that includes every generation of Christians. That's why Phariseeism is always going to be popular. There is a great power that you can gain in being society's moral gatekeepers. And we have lots of moral gatekeepers now. If you can invent new laws and new sins, and if you can convince people that this is God's way, then you have incredible power. You can coerce people into behaving the way you want them to, thinking that they're obeying God. They're walking over an unmarked grave. They're being defiled, and they don't even realize it. They think they're doing good, but it's because they're operating from a perverted standard. People who do this become the arbiters of guilt and forgiveness, and that's powerful. I mean, if you just pay attention to to things people say, there is a great sense of people want to be absolved of their guilt. People feel guilty. They feel like they're wrong. They feel like there's something wrong with them. They want their shame taken away. And if you can hold out some promise, some hope that following your standard will remove their guilt, then they're going to be, they'll be drawn to that. Because that's a, that's a, we're fallen. It's a fundamental human need. We need to have our sin atoned for. We need to have, our, we need to have forgiveness. We need to have somebody declare to us, not guilty, you're okay. We get that in the gospel. That's what Jesus provides for us. But repentance and faith is hard. But if some can, someone can give us something we can control, then, then it becomes a lot easier. Then it's, it's, we're not having to operate on the basis of faith, that's in, that righteousness that's imputed to us by a sinless, perfect Savior. We're now controlling our own destiny. But it's a burden. It's a burden that we can't possibly bear, even though it's our greatest temptation to do so. We're not equipped or qualified to dictate the terms of grace and justice. That belongs to God alone. That's not ours. That's what the first century Pharisees were doing. That's what these Pharisees right here were doing, and clearly Jesus hated it. That's why he's saying, woe to you, woe to you. He's saying all these things like, this is terrible what you're doing. And he's angry at the Pharisees for how they're corrupting the hearts of the people and leading them away and obscuring even their ability to see their Messiah when he arrives in the midst. They've overturned the justice of God. There's a similar parallel account of this story in Mark chapter 7, verse 9, which says, Jesus, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So whenever we we assert a human standard, a made-up standard, What we're doing is we're telling people, you relate to God on my terms. And then in so doing, we're rejecting the commandment of God, which is good and true and life-giving. That's what Pharisees do. So just put this in simple terms. It's a sin to invent new sins. 
And it's a sin to invent new standards of righteousness. Um, the form of this that's common in our day um, has been labeled by um, scholars, his name is Christian Smith, Catholic guy. Um, he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. You heard of this? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, and he said that's kind of the, what he's observed in the evangelical world. In fact, I'm not sure of this. I believe he was, I don't know if he was an evangelical Christian, but he, he was a believer, but he converted to Catholicism. I think in his study of evangelicalism, he's like, I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm returning to Rome. Uh, but I don't know that it's any better there. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it's not. But anyway, that's his story. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And basically what this means is that we worship the God of our feelings. So our, our feelings become the standard of righteousness or sin. Our feelings are God. Right and wrong are determined by the subjectivity of our emotions. If you're paying attention, you'll, you'll see this all the time. If somebody feels that something is right, then it is right. Because their feelings are their God. Who are we to judge? You ever heard, live your truth? What does that mean? It means truth is what you determine it to be. And so you live your truth. And whatever you feel that truth is, that is your standard of right and wrong. So if you're doing evil things, but you feel as though they are righteous, then they're righteous. Because your feelings are the final standard that your behavior is judged by. And if somebody feels something is wrong, then it is wrong, including what other people do. If somebody else feels that what you're doing is wrong, then their emotions are the standard that they're operating by, and other people can be judged by the feelings of others. And so one person's hurt or pain is what determines what's true. And know Wade has been telling me this. He said, Michael, your feelings are not your Bible. <laughs> That's a good word. I need to hear that. Because a lot of times I'll feel a certain way, and the way I feel is so real and so loud. I'm just like, this has to be true. This has to be what's real. And I need those loving reminders that how I feel doesn't determine what's reality. Reality is what it is. Reality is what God declares it to be. And so whenever I feel something that's out of sync with God's word, then I need to go to God's word and let God's word tell me what's real. And then hopefully my feelings will catch up to it. But that's the way I feel is not the determining factor in what's real. And so in modern Christianity, we have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to validate our feelings. All right, the fifth one, number five. Pharisees fight the wrong battles. Pharisees fight the wrong battles. They fight the battles of the past after the outcome has already been decided. Now, this one is not as obvious to us whenever we read it, so let me read it and I'll explain it to you. Verse 47. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. 
Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So there's a lot of, a lot of Old Testament kind of details there that we won't get into, but I'll, here's the point that he's getting at. The Pharisees built tombs to honor the persecuted prophets of old, but it was hypocritical. They honored the prophets because the prophets were popular with the people, and the people honored and loved the prophets. And so the Pharisees built the tombs to honor these prophets in order to borrow their credibility, to borrow credibility from the prophets that made them look good to do so. Even though Jesus is saying, if you would have been back in the day of the prophet, you would have been among the ones that were killing them. You're fake, he's saying to them. It's a lie. You're hypocrites. You honor the men that you would have killed if you were there. But since their death and their persecution produced some good result that you now enjoy, now you'll build a tomb in honor of them. It's so disingenuous. So think of this. 50 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. would have been a very divisive figure. He was loved by some and he was hated by others. And he suffered greatly during the civil rights era to fight for the things that was important to him. And back in that day, those who were known to support him and associate with him could have paid a very heavy price for associating with him in that day. How do people feel about Martin Luther King Jr. now? Universally loved, almost universally. He is very highly respected because we now see and appreciate what he accomplished. We said what he accomplished was a good thing. And a lot of people, if they're being honest, they would say, yeah, I, would have, I was wrong about him. People that have long enough memory. They would say, I was wrong about him. Or, you know, I, I, I appreciate now what, what he's accomplished. So there's no price to pay now for being associated with Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, there can be some cachet socially to associate with Martin Luther King Jr., even though 50 years ago you would have suffered for associating with him. You see what I'm saying? So people who would have opposed him in his day can claim to support him now. They can build a monument. They can build a tomb for this this man that is now revered and appear heroic in doing so. They're borrowing his credibility. They're spending his cultural capital that he earned through his suffering in order to gain an advantage in our day. That's so disingenuous. And Jesus is saying, that's what the Pharisees were doing. You would have prosecuted these or persecuted these guys in their day. How dare you act as though these are your heroes when if you were alive then, you would have been the first to throw a stone at them. But now you're building monuments to honor them? It's fake. It's hypocritical. What good is it to build monuments to dead heroes when it costs you nothing? That's not courage. But they get to posture like they're being courageous. What good is it to bask in the victory of yesterday's battles? It's not courage, it's posturing. And Jesus is saying, you guys are posturing. You're fake, you're posers. Don't act like you're these heroes. So he's speaking hard words to them and telling them real obedience to God isn't cheap. I see this in myself. It's easy to criticize the men and women of the past who paid a heavy price for their obedience. You know, I can sit comfortably in my office, heated or air-conditioned, whichever the case may be, 
and read about men and women who were valiant and they suffered for their faith, but they had blind spots and they got things wrong. It's so easy to, to read about these heroes of the faith and think, eh, yeah, but uh, they really missed it on this thing. And not have gratitude and appreciation for the enormous things that they accomplished that I benefit from. It's a, it's a lack of gratitude. It's a Pharisee in my own heart. We can't judge people of the past. And, that, and that's, what, that, that's, that's such a common thing to do now, is to judge heroes of the past for their blind spots, to judge people of the past from today's modern human made-up standards. And be ungrateful for all the things they got right. And the fact of the matter is, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Men and women who were great, who did great things in the past, and it's arrogant and pharisaical of us to be critical of them without being grateful for them. Number six, Pharisees learn knowledge but lack wisdom. More knowledge doesn't always lead to more wisdom. Verse 52, woe to you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So the lawyers were keepers of knowledge. They were the scribes. They were the ones who, who had this information that they were to safeguard and to pass down the faith to future generations. Scribes, lawyers, that was their job. So they were experts in the law, and yet their law degrees and their PhDs didn't do them a lot of good. Because more knowledge does not produce more wisdom. We see this in 2 Timothy 3, 7, where uh, Paul says, false teachers, that's who he's talking about, but I'm catching mid-sentence. False teachers are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Pharisees are those that have knowledge, but they, they don't use their knowledge in a way that promotes wisdom and godliness. And so he says, you're not entering into the kingdom of God yourselves, but those who would enter in, you're a barrier to them. You're a stumbling block. You're hindering them from entering. And that's what the key of knowledge, the key of knowledge he's referring to here is the way of salvation. They kept people from a true understanding of God's grace. All right, those are the six ways of identifying your inner Pharisee. Let me just wrap up here with a quick word about how to mortify our inner Pharisee. Two things very quickly. The first one is confess specific sins of Phariseeism as the Holy Spirit reveals them to you. So maybe there's one or two that I mentioned here or more where you said, ouch. Uh, I, had, I had a few ouches myself preparing this. So if there's an ouch, then confess it to God. Say, Lord, I see a Pharisee spirit in myself here. And confess it to somebody else. If you have a trusted man or woman in your life that, um, that you would like to open up about, confess it to them. Say, hey, I see this in me. There's a potential Pharisee lurking within the heart of each of us because it's easier to be a Pharisee than a disciple. We can control the terms of being a Pharisee, but Jesus controls the terms of being a disciple. And so that temptation will always be there. So whenever we see it, we need to confess it. The inner life matters, right? The inner life matters. I mean, God, of course, is pleased with outward obedience, but the life of the heart matters. We're not externally obedient at the expense of the inner life. So wherever you see this inner Pharisee lurking in the shadows, wherever I see it in my life, 
It's time to clean the inside of the cup. And we clean the inside of the cup by confession, by asking God, hey, cleanse this. Because I, I, there's, there's dirt in me that I can't reach. You've got to clean that out, Jesus. And so we confess it to God specifically, and we confess it to others as appropriate. And that means we have to be honest with God, honest with ourselves, uncomfortably honest, uncomfortably honest enough to say, I'm a hypocrite. I'm self-righteous. I make up sins. I'm judgmental. We got to be honest about those things. And listen, there's grace for those sins. There, being a Pharisee is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's a normal sin that every human being struggles with. So it's, confess it. And there's grace for you. Here's the second one, and we'll, we'll finish here. Believe the gospel and receive God's grace. It's the simplest ABCs of the Christian faith. Admit your sin, believe the gospel, commit to following him. Believe the gospel and receive grace. Ultimately, being a Pharisee is a way to avoid Jesus. It's, a, it's, it's following Jesus and dictating the terms, trying to establish our own righteousness. So whenever we're insecure or whenever we're proud, we have doubts, when we're afraid, we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want those things to be seen, but bringing them into the light is the very thing that is necessary to heal them. So we confess them, and then we repent of them. We say, Jesus, I'm turning away from this. I need you to change me. If we cling to it, it's because we want to justify ourselves, and we can't do that. We don't have the ability to justify ourselves. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ is qualified to judge you because Jesus is the law. He is the perfect embodiment of the law of God. Jesus himself perfectly kept the law. He was perfectly righteous in every way. And only Jesus suffered on your behalf so that he can declare you righteous based on his finished work on the cross. So he knows your pretenses. He knows your pride, your self-righteousness, all your virtue signaling. He knows all of it. He knows all the ugliness of your sin. And he loved you and he died in your place knowing exactly who you are. So we can be justified, not in our own effort, not based on our own effort, but completely resting in his righteousness. So we come to Christ knowing that he welcomes all who confess their sin there's no sin that you can confess that he'd be like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. I don't know if I can handle that one. There is no such sin. We come to him humbly, repentant, cleanse the inside of this filthy cup. I've got a coffee mug that I rarely wash, and it's white. <laughs> Every day, I just hang it on the rack, and I just use it again the next day, and it's disgusting. Jesus can cleanse that filthy cup in ways that I never could. That's, that's, that's how we are. It's like we're, we need Jesus to cleanse us. And he can and he will. He promises that he will. And even as we come to the table, we're coming as vessels needing to be fed and nourished by his grace. So as we celebrate communion here in a moment, come and dine and he will have fellowship with self-righteous Pharisees like me. And like some of you. But God is purging that from me. And by God's grace, he will purge that from you. And so come, 
have a meal with Jesus, and don't judge him for not doing fall on your man-made standard. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, so much. We, we worship you and glorify you for being that perfect, righteous example that welcomes sinners. Our Father, we thank you that you spoke your law so that we can know what's right and know what's wrong. We thank you for sending your Son who can come not to condemn the world because the world was already condemned in sin, but to save the world. Thank you that you save us, Lord Jesus, by faith. So, Lord, now give us the courage and the humility to confess our sin to you and to repent and to receive the forgiveness that you freely offer. And as we come to the table, feed us that which is good. Give us your food, your drink, which is your body and your blood. So we're coming to celebrate the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel that saves us. We give you all praise now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.